Hello and welcome to this, the 33rd episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Og McAnally, artistic director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And this week we are not, in fact, coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. We are, in fact, coming to you from a rain-soaked Ballinasloe County Galway, because in my infinite wisdom, I have signed up to take on another gig on top of the job that I'm doing at the Abbey at the moment, the house with uh, Tom Murphy, and uh, I have signed up for the next series of what was uh, a hugely successful TV thing for TG Cahar a couple of years ago called Shock the Nikoska, which is, um, of course, dealing with um, the seven signatories of the proclamation and all around the Easter Rising. So I'm doing this Easter Rising TV thing for the next um, month or so, and uh, it's going to be a little bit bonkers um, because I start filming I guess this morning if you're listening to this Thursday morning I guess it's Thursday morning for me too because it's about two o'clock in the morning here on a Wednesday night Thursday morning um, and uh, yeah I've got some hectic times ahead of me I was obviously on stage at the Abbey tonight last night whatever we want to phrase that um, and uh, came off stage got straight into a car was driven down here I'm going to get a couple of hours sleep now and then we'll be on set first thing in the morning uh, crack of dawn to film up until just after lunchtime to then get straight back into a car to be driven back down to the Abbey to walk straight on stage to, to do the show again to walk straight off stage to get back into a car to be driven back down to Galway um, so it's all going to be a little bit bonkers and this is going to stretch way through to the end of the run um, maybe it's insane but it looks like logistically we can make it work and uh, hey it's exactly what Michael J Fox did when he was going from uh, family ties into Back to the Future. So if it worked for him, it might work for me. So we've got some bonkers times ahead of us. But I'm looking forward to it. You know, it's great to be busy. Um, I can't knock it. I'm absolutely delighted that it's happening. Um, and it's a, it looks like it's going to be a nice little uh, show down here, a nice little team on it. And very much looking forward to be part of it. And uh, obviously, of course, things are going particularly well for us back at the Abbey at the moment. Um, the response to the show has been been really exceptional and has taken a lot of us by surprise. I mean, obviously we knew we had a very, very strong team in place for the show and an exceptional play, but the way it's been received has uh, has blown us all away. I mean, the reviews have been ridiculously positive. Um, you know, it was almost as if we were writing them ourselves, uh, although that definitely didn't happen. Um, but no, it's look, it's been it's been really great, and uh, and and it's great that the tickets are selling so well, and they're selling ridiculously quickly as well. So if you're thinking about popping in, don't be leaving to the last minute. Um, shows are already starting to sell out, so uh, I would really wholeheartedly encourage you to pop down and see it if you can, and to book sooner rather than later. I mean, it's just it's just a joy to be out there every night on the stage of your national theatre, the Abbey stage, um, playing to pretty much full houses and uh, pretty much standing ovations every night. It's uh, it's a wonderful feeling, not something I'm necessarily all that used to, but it's absolutely great. And, and to be doing it with such a great gang down there, such an amazing uh, cast and crew and creative team behind the show is an, an absolute pleasure. It's it's an absolute joy. I'm having a blast and, uh, and I just hope it can continue right the way along. Um, so, of course, each week we bring you these podcasts absolutely free of charge. We have promised that we'll never, ever charge for these interviews, but we are, as ever, looking for you to put your money back into Irish theatre. The whole ethos behind this podcast is to support, promote, and celebrate all that is great about Irish theatre. And what is the easiest way for you to do that and show your support? To go and buy yourself some tickets. I don't care where you buy them for, preferably the House at the Abbey, but it doesn't matter. Go and buy yourself some theatre tickets somewhere. If you feel that theatre tickets are slightly outside your reach, maybe this week or this month, go on over to one of the f- crowdsourcing websites like fundit.ie, um, 
and uh, maybe see if there's a project going on there that uh, that takes your fancy and uh, and support them because donations there start as low as a fiver. There's always great rewards in return for them uh, and you get a warm, fuzzy feeling inside knowing that you're doing your best to support Irish theatre. Um, and also there's other options around there at the moment with the uh, festival season coming upon us. There's an awful lot of fundraisers being run around town at the moment for you know Fringe Festival and 10 Days in Dublin. And actually as part of 10 Days in Dublin, there was one that caught my eye, which will be a night of kind of music and comedy and theatre at the Twisted Pepper this Friday evening. And that's for John Curvin and Little Room for their show, Future Is... Now, is it Future Is Blank or Future Is Blank, if you know what I mean? Um, But they have a great show coming up that's going to be based on the writings of the guy who's behind all the sci-fi stuff for Blade Runner and Total Recall and The Running Man and all this great stuff. So uh, if you're a sci-fi fan, that's going to be a great show. Great to get down and support them. Um, and, uh, of course, there are other ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket. Maybe go and tell people about this podcast, whether that's in person over a cup of coffee, by sharing the link as a Facebook post, or by retweeting the link on Twitter. Do please subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes, and please, please, please leave us a review on iTunes. I bang on about this every week, but you know what? You know We've put about seven months' worth of these podcasts out there now, Uh, And if you've been enjoying them, then maybe think to yourself, well, look, it's not too much to ask for maybe two or three minutes of your time to go on over to iTunes and leave us a review. It does a huge amount to help boost us up in the charts. um, And by raising our profile, it helps us raise the profile of all the people we're interviewing over here. You can follow us on Facebook, uh, Rise Productions. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland or follow us on Twitter. We're at Rise Ireland. And so that brings us to this week's guest. And anyone who knows me will know how much of a special one this is. This is for me because it is the amazing Declan Conlon, a guy who I have the great privilege of sharing a stage with at the moment, but a guy who I am happy to call a friend and a guy who I, I love going and buying tickets to go and see. I travelled up to Belfast only a month or two ago to see him uh, up in the Lyric there recently, just give another phenomenal performance. Um, the guy's a real hero of mine. He is arguably one of the best actors in the country at the moment, um, just consistently out there playing leading roles in great plays on great stages with great companies and um, uh, the guy's a superstar really intelligent guy uh, and a guy who's really passionate about the business and I think you'll hear that from from the interview guys had an interesting story through the business um, covered a huge amount of ground done an awful lot of work in the UK and of course back here that we'd know um, the guy's a hero of mine look as usual I'm not going to talk too much before we get into it I'm going to let you get straight into the interview here it is the miraculous the brilliant the wonderful my friend Declan Conlon <laughs> Declan Conlon, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. This is pre come through territory for me. Um, so, let us begin, as we do every week, by going back to the very early days. Why, when, where did it occur to you to, to go for a career in theatre? Well, it was, it was not uh, something I thought about when I was young. Okay. I had no desire to be an actor as a child or anything like that, although we did do... Couple of Gilbert and Sullivan musicals in in the boarding school in Tume, hellish boarding school in Tume that I went to, which was always a relief. Uh, those were very enjoyable, but no, it was never a possibility. It was you know there was nobody suggesting it was a possibility, and it was not something that had occurred to me. But anyway, I was in a, the the story, which I have. If you've heard this before, please forgive me. But uh, I was on the dole in Dublin in eighty six. I think okay. it was. Uh, uh, there were no jobs, and there was no, uh, there was nothing. I had no idea what to do with myself. And uh, when I went in to sign on one day, they they said you have to take one of these schemes, government schemes. So basically, the point was that if you were on a scheme, you weren't officially on the live register, so they were knocking on the numbers on the door. Yeah. So and they were paying you maybe twenty quid more than you were getting on the dole, whatever it was. I think it was sixty quid or something. Right. Like. 
Um, so I went along and I was offered a choice of two things. One was they were building a little park in Sandymont. So, and it was, you could go along and do a bit of digging and plant some flowers, which just sounds yeah. gorgeous, but it was midwinter and it was freezing, it was <laughs> okay. snowing. So I thought, the other one was to meet this guy called Dan Stokes, infamous Dan Stokes. Uh, who had a company called Spur Productions. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy. No, I don't think uh, so. A lot of people have gone through this man's hands <laughs> and okay. have suffered as a result. But anyway, um, I went along to meet this guy. He was setting up this scheme basically to employ himself. He was taking six young people off the door to do one-act plays in old people's homes. Right. So I went along and met this guy. I had no idea what I was doing. He said, read that. I don't know what it was. I think it was a bit of Chekhov or something. I read it. He said, okay, I'll take you. So he took me and five other people off the doll, And we ended up going around in his car to different old people's homes. And when I say old people's homes, I don't mean big ones. I mean houses. The homes in which old people lived. Li- well, not, not necessarily their own. <laughs> I mean, there were a few of them living in one home. Okay. They weren't hospitals, for example. Okay. They were small. I remember one, one of the first ones we did. We were doing a Sean O'Casey one-act play, and we went into the living room of this home. <laughs> I, I didn't even have a line. I was a guard, dressed in a guard uniform, and I came on at the end to arrest the, the person playing the lead with the girl dressed as a nurse. So we were in a nursing home, and I'm standing in the corridor in a guard uniform with the girl dressed as a nurse, and there are three old people in the living room, and the telly's on, and there's a coffee table. So we went in and turned the telly off, which caused consternation and immediately and moved the coffee table and the people were wondering what the hell is going on what are you doing so the one act play happened whilst one old man rocked back and forth with his fingers in his ears and his eyes closed but then, <laughs> obviously hoping the thing would finish soon but in the distance down the corridor as this thing was going on I saw this man on a Zimmer frame inch his way down to the TV room uh, I just stood there outside I, hadn't, I wasn't on yet I hadn't come on to do my, make my arrest me and the girl with the nurse, and he got to us eventually, and he said, nurse, bring me in, and she was trying to explain, I'm not a nurse, I'm an actress, <laughs> in an old people's home, dressed as a nurse. So eventually she did bring him in, and everybody collapsed, and laughter, and the whole thing was a disaster. But every time we went to one of these homes, it was the same deal, it was the same deal. People didn't want to know about it, we turned the telly off, we'd do it in a space, literally this, this size, we're, we're in the space now, it's a couple of feet yeah. by a couple of feet. But anyway, that was started. And it was such good crack. I mean, we just laughed a lot. So uh, at the end of that, uh, your man, Dan Stokes, had his own private company, Shakespeare for Schools. Okay. So what he was basically doing, he he took me then out of the the, the old people's home (laughs) section of his empire and put me into the the school's theatre part. Uh, for 50p a show on top of what I was getting on the dole. Wow, that's the, that's the big bucks. That's the glamour <clears throat> the big show bucks. right there. From the, from the glamour of old people's yeah. homes to the glamour of an extra 50p a week. Two shows a day, a pound a, a pound a day. Okay. Extra. So I went round, we were doing Julius Caesar in a production in which he himself played Brutus and Mark Anthony. Okay. That's By change, interesting hats. Yeah, okay. <laughs> At one point he actually had a conversation with himself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it was just uh, outrageous rubbish. But it was such good crack, and I just thought, this is, you know, this is a laugh. And then at the end of it, <coughs> Trinity College had just set up their diploma course. Yes. Uh, they had all, I think that it was the second year of that course. So I went in to apply for that, and as luck would have it, got a place. See, that's really interesting, because from a guy who had had no experience mm. whatsoever, your first few shows are 
Chekhov and O'Casey and Shakespeare. So you're in at the deep end. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's one way of looking at it. <laughs> and we weren't <coughs> we weren't really doing productions of these plays. We were sort of reading them. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Badly. But anyway, that was the start. And then and then from talk about out of the frying pan into the fire. I mean, out of out of nothing. Out of working with people who had no. I mean, dance dogs. You know sense of anything and we were right. messing around to go into drama school and Michael Joyce was the teacher in drama school and he was hardcore yeah hardcore Stanislavski based uh, bringing what he felt was the rigour of a career in the in the English theatre back to to Dublin but hard man as well you know uh, he wasn't well at the time we didn't know it he obviously did so he was sort of taught he had a very impatient with the fact that we didn't understand what the hell he was talking about. So really? Very much so. I think I was kicked out three times. That's quite a record. Course. Mm. I was kicked out on the first day. <laughs> Go on, tell <laughs> us a story. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm from the West of Ireland. I had no idea of discipline. I didn't understand. Being on time is a very sort of loose phrase, you know, in Lockray where I come from. Right. Well, growing up, it's just, I mean, even though I went to boarding school and you're ruled by the bell, maybe after that, after having been ruled by a bell for six years in boarding school, I just, the idea of having to show up for anything on time just was anathema to me. So we were supposed to start at 10 o'clock on the first day of drama school and I showed up at two. <laughs> and he had kept the whole class sitting in a circle all morning. Waiting for the arrival of one Declan Connell? Yeah. And when I showed up, he was in a, he was apoplectic with rage. <laughs> And I didn't understand, and I said, well, why, why can't we just do something now that I'm here? That's <laughs> amazing. But anyway, I, he sent me home, have him kept everybody waiting all morning, and uh, told me I was on my first warning on day wow. one. Tell me a bit about <coughs> your time in Trinity, because we've spoken to quite a few people on the podcast who've gone through that course in its many guises from the old two-year diploma right the way through to the three-year degree. Um, how useful a time was it for you? What, As you look back on it now, what do you feel you got from it? Well, it's funny because I think Michael Joyce was a very. There were only. There was only. I mean, it was a very. The facilities weren't there. They didn't have that theatre that they have now. Yeah. They had. We were on a, a house on on. Um, what's the name of the street? Not Lombard Street. We had a little theatre in Lombard Street, which is now some kind of furniture showroom. Okay. Where we did the plays, and the place was. What's the name of that street? Or Kenny's Pub is at the back there. Uh, not Westmoreland Street. No. West, is it Westmoreland Street? No, I don't know. Per Street Station. Yeah, that's Westmoreland Street. Yeah. Well, there, we had a house there, so we did all our stuff there. Um, we had one acting teacher, Michael Joyce, and one movement teacher, Diana Theodorus, who was a lovely woman and very nice, warm energy to counteract Michael's, you know, uh, rather more harsh okay. energy. But anyway, I, I learned at the time it was very difficult because Michael. You know, we were, uh, no confidence or anything. You know, you didn't understand what the hell he was talking about. So he was trying to instill standards, which retrospectively I have learned an enormous amount from Michael Joyce, but I didn't learn it at the time. I learned it when I started to work afterwards and applied some of the things he was trying to teach us that I just didn't understand when I was in drama school. I didn't get any of it. So I mean, to the point where, you know, at the end of our final two, we had our final show the Beggar's Opera at the end of our two years and at the, at the end of our last show he sat us all in the seating after the audience had left the theatre and he went around and pointed to everybody and told them how well or badly they had done in the two years and how much they had learned and he basically came to me and said you've learned nothing you will never work wow 
and that was what I left Trinity with for two years. But then, as after our first year in Trinity, we went on this. The American government paid for our class in Trinity and the equivalent year in the Guildhall School in London. Right. Uh, Kathy White was in that class. Reese Evans, a few people like that. Um, Alistair McGowan. Okay. <coughs> we we went over with them on an Anglo-Irish, paid for by the government, kind of bonding. I don't know what the point of it was really, but it was fantastic. We went to the Eugene O'Neill Theatre Centre in Connecticut. This is a private beach, and we stayed in these farmhouses, and there was a big studio, and we spent a month working on American musicals with Broadway heads coming in, teaching us tap dancing and singing, and and we lived in these cottages, and just we worked all day, you know, How on different musicals, yeah, and, and, and drank all evening with all these people. <laughs> so we had, but the people who ran that school, Charles and Sylvia Traeger gorgeous couple, really immersed in American theatre, this couple. Uh, when we finished that month, um, the Guildhall still had to go back and finish their final production, but we were done yeah, for okay. the summer. So I, I stayed in the school for the summer, and there was a National Playwrights Conference where they have 10 playwrights come up and do their plays, and you have to rehearse them in three days and perform them. So I worked the bar and the kitchens for, for three months in the, of the summer and got to know these people who ran the school very well and I peered in bits of the little they'd draft me in to be an extra or something yeah. one of the bits you know um, and we became close and at the end of the second year oh I went back then obviously for my second year and at the end of the second year they came to Dublin to see our final show right and I took them around in a rental car on a holiday they wanted to see a bit of Ireland so yeah. we travelled together for a, a week ten days and at the end of it, they asked me if I wanted to go back on a scholarship for a year to the National Theatre Institute, which is a kind of a... They have another school in this place, which people take a semester or two semesters out of their college courses to go and do an intensive theatre. And I was kind of crippled after my two years of Michael Joyce. I couldn't right. do anything. I didn't know how to move or I had no confidence. So going to America for this, I, of course, jumped at the chance to yeah. go. All I had, I was all a lot of very rich kids as well because they were paying for the school. It was very expensive, but I was going to scholarship. All I had to do was sweep the barns after this. In the evening, I do a bit of sort of sweeping up. I was like the oddball kind of Irish boy. <laughs> Sounds kind of romantic. Though. It was cool. They would all take me after we'd done, you know, at weekends. They'd all have cars and stuff. Yeah. And they'd drive me back to different people's houses for the weekend or, or to Vermont or wherever we'd go. For but it was great. It was, and what was wonderful about it, there was a whole raft of different teachers on that course, lots of different disciplines and. I, br I began to breathe. So for the first time, I they were just, it was get up and do it. It wasn't sit down and work out your super objective and your objective and, you know, your, if you didn't have an adjective for the line or a, an active verb for yeah. the line, I just got lost in all that stuff, all that sort of specific kind of training that I wasn't ready for. So I just, it paralyzed me. Right. But going to America was get up, do it, move on, yeah. you know, just do something. So I, I kind of, all the stuff that I had learned over two years but didn't even understand that I had learned... I sort of was able to apply to the stuff in America whilst also opening up and, and becoming a bit freer. It's a really interesting thing because I had <clears throat> a kind of a similar experience in, in Trinity in that I felt that with drama schools where they can be known for breaking you down and then building you back up again, I felt that Trinity did a great job of, of breaking us down but didn't necessarily build us back up again to no. go out into the world, into what is a, a pretty tough profession. Yeah, exactly. Whereas you'd be looking across to the Gaiety School of Acting and here was you know 18 or 20 kids coming out all bursting with enthusiasm and we can go and take on the world. And so I think it's, I think it's a really important thing to send people out there with the degree of confidence that they can go and, and do it. Well, absolutely, completely. And, and you know, the, 
there was also no there was no recognition of the fact that you were going out into an industry. Yeah. There was a complete lack of that when we were doing the course. There was nobody came in to discuss the fact that it was a business. There was nobody coming in. There was no idea of agents coming in. Or, there was none of that. Right. I mean, it was 1980. I left in 89. And it was just so young. The idea of drama schools at the time in yeah. Dublin were... It was a new concept. I mean, the Abbey had had a school pre- yeah, prior to that, but that had finished quite a bit before that. But anyway, that was... Yes, I agree with you completely. Jesus, if, you can't, if you're build, breaking people down, and Michael Joyce was good at it, now, I'm, I sound like I'm knocking him a lot. I learned a hell of a lot from the man, and I have an enormous amount of respect for what he tried to teach us. Yeah. And I learned a lot retrospectively from him, and he kept, you know, his standards were very important to him, and he kept repeating a mantra, which was, when you're in the industry, do not join the conspiracy of mediocrity. It was a mantra. Wow. And in a way, I think what he meant by that was, it's very easy when you're in the business to, because it's a small, close-knit group of people, you clap me on the back when I do mine and secure in the knowledge that when you do yours, I'll do the very same for you. And we won't really challenge anything and we won't. He warned against that and I think that was a very useful lesson to learn. Yeah, I do too, man. That's really important. Talk to me then about the transition from your time there into going out into the big bad world and being a professional actor. Well, after... After... Uh, the year in, Amer- in America, there was an English teacher, an English director who taught on that course called Richard Digby Day, um, <laughs> who had run Colchester Rep okay. in England. And at the time, you needed an equity card to, to be an actor. So they had two equity cards per year to give out. And he liked me. So he said at the end of my time in that school in America that he would take me to do two shows in rep in Colchester and give me my equity card. So I went there and did uh, Amadeus and a small family business, which was a, what's his name? Oh God, Alan Akeborn. Right. Uh, And then after that, after having done that and had the equity card, I moved to London and I had no idea, no agent, no nothing, no idea how to begin with it all. Ended up living in a squat in Peckham with a bunch of mates. We broke into a house in Peckham. (laughs) Man, the showbiz story was so glamorous throughout. (laughs) But the British Rail had bought all these houses. They were going to build the Channel Tunnel Rail Link another direction. Right. And they bought up a whole lot of houses in Peckham. Beautiful big old houses in Peckham. And then there was so much protest, they didn't use that part of the line. So so we, we knocked into one of those, a three-story house, and I lived there for a year. Just turn on the gas, turn on the lucky. We lived there rent-free for a year. Um, but that's, And then I wandered around London looking for working in market research and every kind of rubbish, and I couldn't get a job. As an actor, I couldn't get any kind of. A, I couldn't get. I had no idea how to begin. But yeah. as you say, Trinity didn't prepare us for any of the, the life skills. Sure. That you need to know to how to get into the business. So I came back. After a year, and. Uh, yeah, that's another story which I won't discuss on the podcast. <laughs> but uh, I decided to stay in Ireland for a while, and then I, I couldn't get a sniff here either because I, having left Trinity, I had been away for almost two years at yeah. that stage and I didn't know anybody in the business really in, in Ireland so I set up a company with Jane Snow right. who I had met doing my first play that I did back in Dublin really awful Lady Chatterley's Lover with Olivia Tracy Ireland's former Miss Ireland wow <clears throat> um, which was just <laughs> one of the most hilarious pieces of theatre ever 
Uh, but anyway, that's again another story. But uh, <laughs> so I met Jane Snow. And we set up a company, the Naked Theatre, and we we financed. Uh, we did. We got Alan Gilson on board, and we did Stephen Barkoff's play Decadence. Right. And we financed it. Well, I, I don't know if I can discuss. It. Sure, you can discuss anything. Really? Yeah, sure you can. Even though if it's too bad, I'll edit it. You but can I edit. definitely won't. Well, we just we, we financed it because Jane at the time was uh, married to a man who worked. They had lived in Iraq okay. for quite a while. He was working for a pharmaceuticals company, and they had bought a lot of gold jewelry. Okay. And they were splitting up at the time, and he was still in Iraq, and we couldn't finance the play, so. So we staged a robbery in the house. Okay. For the gold. And uh, it went bye-bye. And I had it under my bed, in my bed set, up in the coom. Iraqi gold? Iraqi gold. And we got three grand. Wow. I think for it. Uh, So we put on the play and we toured it around... Ireland. This is amazing. I, I love this. Aidan <laughs> Kelly told a story about stealing copper from a convent to fund plays. You're taking Iraqi gold to fund plays. This is brilliant, man. This is investing in the arts. I'm excited about it. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yes, I'm not sure if I should be telling this, but anyway, and uh, I, of course, stupidly, then, uh, about six months later, when I was as poor as a church mouse, I pawned it. And of course, it had already been. I don't know how we didn't get done for that, but anyway, it didn't happen. <laughs> but, um, Yes, that's how we financed the first play, and then and then we did a couple more with it. We did a we did a Hamlet, a very bizarre Hamlet as well with the Naked Theatre, and Endgame. We did three wow three plays, just trying to make work because there was no way of getting into the business. And then having it, it was Jane who had the relationship with Alan Gilson, and she asked him to come on board and direct Decadence. And then he was directing the Patriot Game at the Abbey, right? Tom Murphy's radio play initially, right? That he adapted. For the stage, and uh, I didn't get cast in it when it was in the Peacock. But then they were they were recasting some of the parts because there was a festival in Glasgow, Theatre and Nations. There was an Irish, English, Scots, and Welsh play taking place in Edinburgh right. in a mini festival, and the Patriot Game was the Irish play. So Alan cast me, and they recast in that. And that was my first time to work for the Abbey. Wow, that's amazing. Well, let's let's talk a bit <coughs> about your time at the Abbey then, because it seems that over the years you've done an insane amount of work there probably the, I've worked at the Abbey more than anywhere else yeah any other theatre other. Um, what is it like for you to be working at the Abbey then at this stage do you take it for granted is it just another gig you're there all the time or is it still mm. a magical moment stepping out on the stage of the National Theatre always and, uh, to me the Abbey is uh, it's an honour to step on the Abbey stage right always to work for the National Theatre to me is a, is a real honour I love it and I love the Abbey uh and I've been very privileged to do, I don't know how many plays I've done there now, but a few, quite a few. Yeah. Um, but I had a gap. I was in London for 10 years in the, in the meantime, and so I didn't work in Ireland for 10 years. But since I've come back, I've worked quite a bit in the Abbey as well. And, well, let's talk about that time in London then, because, you know, it seems to me that you've kind of worked in the biggest places over there. I mean, you've you know, done good stints with the RSC and at the National and stuff as well. What was, what was that time like going back to London, having been there... Squatting at Peckham. Well, again, it was again. It's, everything seems to have been an accident when I look back on how things have panned out for me because I didn't make a decision to move to London. I 
after doing the the Patriot game, Katie Mitchell, she's now very well known yeah. English director, but she was kind of starting out at this time. She was Gary Hines was running the Abbey. She brought her over to do a Gorky play in the Peacock, and I auditioned for her and got a part in that, and we got on very well. And shortly after that, she asked me if I'd come over to audition for Henry the Sixth Part Three. While she was kind of doing this amalgamation of Henry VI, one, two, and three, a bit of Richard II, a bit of Richard III, into a thing called Battle for the Throne, a civil war, okay. basically. It's what she had put together. And she brought me in, cast me. I was cast, basically, in a very small part and understudying uh, two of the leads. Sure. Uh, a wonderful actor called John Keegan, who, uh, a great friend of Eleanor's, Correct. actually, at the time, who died when he was 46 of cancer, but a beautiful man. And he was playing Warwick, was the lead in this. <clears throat> we lived together in Stratford at the time and over the course of we were toured for a year with this play we went all around the world we went to we went to Los Angeles and Tokyo and Manila and Chile Brazil all across Europe like wow. we toured an extensive tour with this so we did it in a lot of different places but he let me go on for him maybe 30 times really yeah playing the lead in the play because I had I had about 10 line part and I was understudying so he would Every now and then he'd say, you haven't done it for a while, have you? Go on, I'll stay in the hotel, you go on. And he'd let me go on and do it. Was that terrifying? Was it amazing? Terrifying, but... and stretch those muscles, though. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so when you're doing a job for that length of time and you've got such a little amount to do... I was on stage all the time, I was playing his brother in the play. Right. His sort of mute brother. <laughs> so, you know, you're on stage all the time. So I wasn't frightened of... I'd lost any fear of being on stage. And there were big two, three thousand seater auditoriums in some of these South American venues. But... Uh, so that was a great way of stretching your muscles and wands. I'm very grateful to John for, for you know, being generous because there were other actors in that show who were playing big parts who were being understudied by some of my contemporaries yeah. at the time, and um, there was no way they were going to let them out. Yeah. <clears throat> and then, I mean, in terms of making that move back over to London, had you felt that you know you maybe had done you know a bit here and it was time to go and have another crack over there? Did you feel? What, what was the impetus behind that move back over? It was literally Katie Mitchell saying, do you want to come to the RSC? And that was, that that, was that's it. That's what we say yes to, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. simple as that. So I'd, I, had no pl- I didn't plan to go back to England, uh, but I went to do that job thinking I'll just do this tour. And then that was a year-long job. And at the back of that, then Katie took me in to do a play at the National. So I, And then I, I got auditioned and, and got another part in another show on the back of that. So I did right. two back-to-back at the National. And then after that, uh, I went back to the RSC again with Katie Mitchell. She was casting for the mystery plays. Right. Uh, so I went back for another another year and a half. So in total, I spent four years at the RSC, maybe four and a half years. That's amazing. Uh, the last time I wasn't with Katie Mitchell, it was in, in 1999 or just 99, 2000 when I went back to do two shows. And that was another year and a half. So yeah, in total of four and a half years at the RSC. What is life like at the RSC versus anywhere else? Well, it's strange because you've got 80 actors in a small town, basically. It's like summer camp. <laughs> it can be it a bit remarkably hectic. dangerous. Yes, remarkably dangerous. <laughs> um, the first time, and the RSC own a lot of property in the town, so they'll sort of rent you these little rabbit hutchy houses that opposite the theatre for, for twice the amount of per diem they're giving you. Right, okay. Um, but you're stuck. If you do that, you're stuck right in the centre of Stratford, and it can become so incestuous. I mean, yeah. it's very good fun, and you're you know you're working, you're rehearsing one, you're opening it, then you're rehearsing another. Usually, you're doing three if you start off there. So your whole you know you, you a lot of work, 
but of course a lot of going to the pub and a lot of crack as well yeah. and parties and a lot of good fun but the last time I went there I purposely learned to drive finally at 33 <laughs> and uh, lived 15 miles outside Stratford in this yeah. old house so that I could just commute in and out and just have some kind of normalcy after having had two stints there before and realising it's too dangerous you know Talk to me about what, in your opinion, makes a good actor. Have you any idea? Because I don't know. This is why I'm asking. I'm starting to ask these questions now because I don't. I don't know how I do what I do. I don't know why I do what I do. What? What? What do you look for either in yourself or when you're in an audience looking at it on stage or actually in a scene yourself on stage? What are you looking for from the eyes of the person opposite you? Well, it's funny because I've been thinking about this a lot over the years as well. I. I'll answer it in a slightly different way, if I may. I think most actors, after a certain amount of time in the business or a certain amount of experience, can ex- execute a choice equally well. So right. once they've made a choice, the, the acting part of it, the execution of that choice, I think most people who have any length of time in the business have talent. <clears throat> what What differentiates actors one actor from another in my view is the choice they make so when you to me as I get older what I appreciate more are people who who don't always take the first option who don't always look for the choice that will maybe have the most um vocal response from the audience, shall we say. Okay. Um, it's like, yeah, and, and, and that also has to do with how an individual grows and develops as an individual and as a person, quite apart from being an actor. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, can only, you can only use the perception that you have or you can only apply that to whatever piece of work you're working on. You can't yeah. invent a perception, another perception. You can only see it through your eyes, through your experience, through your understanding. And I think there are actors who have, uh, who have um, a, a, a wider sense of perception than others. Right. As individuals. Yeah. And therefore they have a broader palette to work on when they approach the work. Yeah. I don't know if that sounds like fudge, but that is what I think I know what I'm trying to say. I don't know if that's clear or not. So when I'm when I'm working but but quite apart from that of course you you want to work when I'm looking into the eyes of another actor on stage you you want somebody who's engaging in the moment. You want somebody who's listening, not just waiting for a cue and playing a choice that they've already preset in their yeah. head. Well, somebody who's 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 able to respond in the moment to something that happens in the moment, yeah, which is the joy. If you well, get that's that, the magic. that to me is the magic. Yeah, it is. Right. But that's why the theatre is so wonderful. Because as you get older as a person, you 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 grow more as a human being. One hopes, and as a result, you have you have a a, a broader and a finer palette of colour to work on when you approach some of the great parts if you're lucky enough to get them yeah. you know what about then for for directors what do you look for from a director what's what's the ideal experience in the rehearsal room for you someone who just leaves you alone to go and work your magic or someone who's micromanaging every step of the way through helping you guiding you what do you look for well probably a combination of both um 
being left alone to work your magic can result in an actor just repeating tricks yeah or being comfortable with a certain kind of choice thinking this has worked before I'll just do this again you, I mean you want a director who's going to be able to very much like Annabelle did on the house you're somebody who's going to be able to dig look at the language and, and recognize that this the rhythm of this scene needs a, a, a real clarity of intention on this line in order for that line to work you know that sort of detail yeah and even though sometimes you think it can be a, you can when you're in the flow of it you think god what's so picky or you know you, of course as soon as you do it you realize that's just that kind of clarity of intention from a director all it's, it does is illuminates the play more and more for an audience and that can only be a good thing but you know I don't want I don't like directors who are too prescriptive who try to tell you that this is the way you should play the part. Yeah. A good director I think doesn't do that. A good director trusts the fact that an actor is a creative individual um who who brings as I just said their not just their their ability to execute a choice but their perception of a moment or an event or a scene to bear through their understanding as human beings and then executes a choice. I mean, yeah. I don't think that that, I don't think it's down to the director to decide what the character's perception is. That's the actor's job. Right. But I think a good director will work with you on that and will kind of, will not let you fudge or make a lazy choice. Well, and I think that's very much what happened on the house. Well, let's talk about the house then. Um, <clears throat> And this ties into something I was going to ask you about. When you are, is there any difference in your approach when you are playing the leading man in inverted commas? Do you is there an added weight on your shoulders in terms of carrying the play, driving the plot, any of that kind of stuff? Is your approach any different to it? Because I mean, the work that you do in the house, I mean, you're you're driving a lot of that show. It's a lot of it's on you. Hmm. Um. Sometimes it's easier. Really? To play. Well, I think so, because you, you, have, you're, you have a much, uh, you, a much greater arc in terms of the character, you know. Yeah. You, you, you travel a greater journey. And also, it's easier to be working than waiting to work. <laughs> That's true. I think. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you get, you, sometimes you can be in flow, and then you have to come off, and you've got a two or three or four scene break, and you're back on, and you sort of have to crank it up again with the house. I don't get a chance to do that. Yeah. I think there's 13 scenes, and he, Christy goes through 12 of them. So there's one scene break and the interval. But in a way, that gives you a momentum, and it makes it easier to kind of keep an, you know, a track of the emotional journey that you're on, and if you need to be at a place of either an emotional intensity or a nervous a level of nervous energy or whatever yeah. it is you know these things are hard to kind of manufacture cold if you've had breaks you've worked on an awful lot of Tom Murphy's plays at this stage uh, what are with the exception of our wonderful production of the house currently running at the Abbey Theatre tickets from uh, no I mean are there you know you've done Jeez, you've been using a lot of the big ones you've done Whistle in the Dark you've done Famine you've done Sanctuary Lamp you've done this like this it's been how special a writer is he to me like without sounding like I'm saying this because we're doing this play he's a genius yeah I think and that's a word I would use so rarely mm. but Tom Murphy is a great writer and there aren't many great writers yeah. great playwrights yeah 
To me, he's one of the five great playwrights in the world. Right. Yeah, you know, I don't think I think Tom Murphy is world class. Is there an added affinity coming from the part of the world that you do, and him coming from the part of the world that he does? I don't know. It's funny. I mean, I I'm from Lockray, County Galway, and I went to school for six years in St. Charlotte's College in Tume, call it. And Tume is Tom's hometown. There's a rhythm that I I I, I feel like I know. Yeah. Um, I feel like I know the tone. There's, there's there are colloquialisms that I heard growing up. You know that don't seem odd to me. Mm. Um, but quite apart from that, I think it's just I just love the complexity of his characters. Um, there's no easy fix in a Tom Murphy play, and the audience have to work. They really yeah. do. Tom sets things up in one scene, doesn't explain them, and they don't pay off for five or six scenes. You know, I mean, it's that's why I think you need really clear direction for them to work because I think it's easy for them not to work. Yeah. You know, there are other writers who write plays that are sort of director proof. Yeah. Uh, Tom's aren't. They really aren't. And I think. Um, but uh, he's he's my favourite Irish writer by a long stretch. This may be an unfair question. Do you have a favourite Tom Murphy play? It's very difficult. Every time I'm working on, I think it's my favourite. I mean, yeah. the house I think is is as good as the best of Tom Murphy's. Plays. Yeah, I think it's massively underrated. I think it's a, a masterpiece of a play. Yeah. But I had a wonderful, wonderful time doing the Sanctuary Lamp because Tom directed it himself. So to be in the room with him sort of illuminating what is a complicated piece as yeah. well was just fantastic and I loved loved playing that that part of Francisco in the sanctuary lamp and I mean what's it like having I mean obviously for the process for the house we had him in the room for the first week to kind of go through the play as such but to have him as in that well in that role of director must have been like another leap again him getting to bring more of his vision to the show yeah I mean, it is quite frightening as well because, you know, without saying anything, you know when he's not buying what you're doing, you know. And you get into that place where you think it's almost like trying to... You think, how how do I please this person? You know, and that's a dangerous road to go down as well because you can end up shooting yourself in the foot a bit with that. But, uh, I mean, he gives... I remember... Because I had done the Sanctuary Lamp in Manchester Royal Exchange Studio a couple of years prior to it with a director who didn't understand it. Yeah. And to be fair to him, it's hard for, to imagine how he would. It's a complicated piece, you know. Um, but anyway, this man didn't really... He loved it. He loved the play, but he didn't really understand it. And we had a very short rehearsal for it. And I remembered it was a whole section of it that I just didn't understand. I didn't understand the emotional journey of it all. I would do it and every night do it and feel, you know, that you're just this is wrong. I don't know what's going on here, but this is wrong. And we came to rehearsal with Tom. And after a couple of weeks, he said, which is a hard note to take as well, he said, from this line here at the top of page, for example, 25, yeah. through to page 35 or 4, 10 pages. He's crying. And you go, what? That's the note. And then you think, Jesus Christ, what am I going to do with that? You know, what am I going to do with that? 
But then you start and you kind of find, and he, he doesn't tell you how or why, or then trusting that actors are intelligent human beings and emotionally intelligent human beings, you start to you start to put that note into the context of what it is you've done before. You find that moment where it kicks, and then over time you just go, "My oh, Jesus, it's brilliant!" Because it absolutely makes sense. Right. At the end of it, it made total sense, and so many of the lines that I had been trying to find meaning for or forcing just just came out came out in a way that I wouldn't have intellectually decided you know before that but just came out of a place of an emotional place because of a note and I noted that I was really just didn't want to hear when he gave it to me I thought this is bollocks why are you doing this to me but you know works finally talk to me about ambitions for you after this I mean is it all the way to the top and Tony Awards and Oscars and world domination and the next Tom Cruise are, or are you happy doing you know like you say working on plays by you know masterpiece plays by geniuses here I mean what, what is there anything left that you haven't done that you'd really like to do oh I'd love to do some film work right okay yeah of course I mean I'd love to be I'd love to see what it's like to do to paint with a finer brush yeah you know just where you have where you just re- everything goes into a different it's a, just a different way of operating more a different kind of detail mm. um, and I think that would be fascinating to try I've done, I haven't done very much of it I've done okay. a little bit but not an awful lot so I'd love to do more of that in terms of ambitions to work to work and to work on good pieces and, and but I would like to do I would like to become more familiar with working on camera right okay are there any great parts that you've always had your eye on that you haven't got to play yet that you go, I'd love to do that someday or is there a director that you'd still love to work with or a play or a writer you'd still love to tackle? I want to do more Shakespeare. Right. Um, after, if, if I had a choice of what you would be doing next, somebody said, what play do you want to do next? I would do A Winter's Tale. Right. I would play Leontes in A Winter's Tale. Okay. Let's, I'll tell you, we'll pitch it to the Arts Council. It's the next Rose production show. It'll be fine. I'll make it happen for you. Budget might be a two-man version. Two-man, exactly. One-man, even. We, yeah. can make, we can make it happen. Um, that's absolutely brilliant. Uh, you don't do Facebook and Twitter and that kind of things, but if people no. want to stay in touch with you, just throw an eye on the listings page of any newspaper. They'll see where you are. Oh, and if people want to give you jobs, Lisa Richards. Indeed. Right. Excellent. Nice Declan, thank you so much for that. It's been amazing. Thanks, Agra. Thank you. What did I tell you? The brilliant Declan Conan. Such a, a, a treat to get to, and sit down with him for that kind of time, have that chat with him. He's, uh, look, I keep saying it, the guy's a hero of mine, and it's, I say it because it's true. He's brilliant. Um, and just great to hear him talk about how passionate he is about the game still. And, and you know, they're talking about a guy there who is absolutely at the top of his game. Um, you know, he's a guy who's played all the biggest roles in all the biggest theatres. Uh, and great to get an insight into his, you know, approach to the craft, his his feelings on the business and and uh, and his journey through the business to date. It's uh, a really fascinating one for me. And uh, I'm going to say that ranks up there as one of my all-time favourites on this whole series. Um, an absolute pleasure. I love him to bits. The guy's, the guy's just a superstar. So look... That brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around town and around the country. Um, as we look to those shows, Pavilion Theatre still has travesties from Rough Magic, and that'll be followed out there by Junk Ensemble with their dance piece Five Ways to Drown. The Viking Theatre still has Rose by Martin Sherman. The Gate Theatre has that production of Glengarry Glen Ross that has got such amazing uh, response to it there. Uh, Bewley's Cafe Theatre has The Wheelchair on My Face from Sonia Kelly. 
Um, the new theatre has the Dublin James Joyce Festival, including The Tower, starring the brilliant Bosco Hogan, who's currently on The House with us too. Um, love all that show from earlier on this year that has been doing great things and on its national tour is now coming to the Mill Theatre in Dundrum. The Civic Theatre in Tala has Griswold with magnificent Shane Gately. Uh, Love Letters is at the Gaiety and the Abbey Theatre, of course, has The House with the brilliant Declan Conlon, who we've just been talking to. Um, look, it's it's a great show. It's been going particularly well for us. It's lovely to see so many full houses there. So if you are thinking about popping down, tickets are selling particularly quickly, so don't leave it too late. Um, we'd love to have you. Come on down and check out what uh, what all the hype is about, I guess. Um, yeah, it's been an interesting one. Uh, yeah, we'd love to have you down there. Pop down and say hello. As we move around the country uh, to Cork, we have the Cork Midsummer Festival kicking off, which is just an amazing program that Tom Creed has put together down there. Um, do check that out. All the details there are at corkmidsummer.com. Um, the Country Girls is playing at the Town Hall in Galway with the beautiful Quiva O'Malley. And uh, as we move up north to Belfast, the importance of being earnest is there with um, the great Paddy Scully and the beautiful Ailey Simmons, who I worked with, God, 10 years ago now on Romeo and Juliet at that time. And that's up at the Lyric Theatre in Belfast at the moment. So look, that's... That is us. That is episode 33 in the books. We will, of course, be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. This has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. Bye.